our next guest, um, Peter Williams, uh, who, is, who studied philosophy at Cardiff University, um, has an MA from Sheffield University and the University of East Anglia, uh, and a doctorate at this university. And he's currently assistant professor in communication and worldviews at Gilderhorn. Is that mm -hmm. okay? Yeah. Okay. You in Norway? Um, he has um, authored and published and edited um, a number of books that have uh, received excellent reviews. Yeah. I would mention only um, one of the most recent, A Faithful Guide to Philosophy, and one that might um, raise um, dear memories to the, present, uh, to the people present here because he is one of the editors of C.S. Lewis at Poets' Corner, um, which is the volume that um, includes the uh, writings and speeches of um, guests and speeches and guests Lewis, celebration held no. by Westminster Abbey in 2013. And for instance, one of these brief uh, reviews that I mentioned was given by um, Professor Wall, who was the guest of our conference at that time. Uh, I would like now to give the floor to Peter Williams with a paper, says Lewis as central figure in formulating the theistic argument from desire. And you see that we've uh, swapped the order of the papers around a little. Uh, I guess so I pick up on this theme uh, from the previous paper of, uh, of joy and transcendent uh, longing that you were talking about there in George MacDonald. The French atheist philosopher André Comte Sponville uh, says this, I would prefer that God did not exist, that God did exist. I would prefer that God did exist. Uh, and this is one of my reasons for not believing it. An existence which corresponds at this point to our strongest desire, how can we not suspect that it's been invented to satisfy them? It's what Freud called an illusion, a belief derived from human desires. Well, C.S. Lewis was well acquainted with Sigmund Freud's critique of religion, but rejected his illogical assertion that God must be an illusion because we desire him. Indeed, Lewis did more than any other 20th century scholar to develop the inversion, the reverse, of Freud's critique of religion. Uh, which has become known as the argument from desire, that is the argument for uh, God or an afterlife in relationship with God from desire. Uh, the argument from desire, I might sometimes shorten that to AFD, uh, is a family of arguments, as arguments for God tend to be, uh, that moves from an analysis of natural or innate human desires to the conclusion that God exists. Lewis used uh, various terms here, uh, romantic and joy in particular. We had a lecture talking about joy yesterday. Uh, to name um, this experience of feeling 
drawn to a, a transcendent, uh, innately desirable something more, something beyond our, our worldly grasp. This mystical experience is, is occasioned or triggered by, but left unsatisfied by its worldly triggers. Those things often have to do with beauty or natural grandeur or uh, reading a George MacDonald book. Um, the triggers are a little bit person-dependent. Uh, they have to do with things that the Romantic movement would have called uh, the sublime quite often. But Lewis made various um, rhetorically diverse presentations of the argument from desire, uh, at least between around about 1933 and uh, 1955 in publication terms. He wasn't the first to explore the theme of longing in connection to God, of course, as we've just seen. Uh, you can see this right back into the Psalms in the Bible, or Augustine's Confessions. Nor was he the first to explore the argument for God from desire. You see it uh, in germ form in the works of Pascal in the Pensees, or G.K. Chesterton uh, in The Everlasting Man, uh, a book we know that Lewis read. Lewis wasn't the only scholar of his day to use the argument from desire. Um, particularly, you might mention uh, the French Thomist philosopher Jacques Martin. However, I do think it's due to Lewis's influence that a growing number of contemporary thinkers have shown interest in this argument from desire. And I've listed just a few names of some contemporary philosophers there on the PowerPoint. And note to you this uh, front cover of the book, C.S. Lewis's Christian Apologetics, Pro and Con, where I took part recently in a debate where I defended uh, Lewis's argument from desire, or rather a number of arguments uh, inspired by his defense of the argument uh, against Gregory Basham, the editor uh, of that book. So let me look at some uh, pre-Lewison uh, roots of this argument, some of his contemporaries and uh, our uh, contemporaries today on this issue. Plato, uh, in the Symposium, uh, famously discusses how you go uh, into the, the mysteries, being initiated into the mysteries of love, beginning with examples of beautiful things in this world, but then using uh, the beautiful things in this world as a kind of a ladder uh, to transcend to more and more transcendent beauties <coughs> until you reach uh, the world of the transcendent and absolute uh, beauty beyond the world. He talks about uh, the felicity of the man who sees absolute beauty in its essence, uh, being able to there therefore bring forth beauty from himself, and have the privilege of being beloved of God and becoming, if ever a man can, immortal himself. This sense that through this experience of transcendent beauty we can get in contact with, with absolute beauty and with God. Although those don't, in this passage, seem to necessarily uh, combine into one and the same uh, object. Aristotle 
thought that human life must have an objective goal or telos worth striving towards for its own sake, some sort of ultimate end grounded in some objective, ultimate, uh, normative good. The conjunction of all the ultimate ends that are really good, he calls the the total good or the, the totem bonum. And Aristotle argues that our totem bonum uh, is uh, eudaimonia in the Greek. It's often translated as, as happiness, um, but that's too thin a translation. It, it means a state of objectively blessed being. And the highest good for Aristotle, amongst all of the real goods that compose the total good for human beings, is the sum, the summum, the summit uh, of, uh, of, of uh, uh, things that give us this objective, blessed uh, existence. Picking up on this kind of thinking, the medieval uh, thinkers uh, start applying this to the desire for God. Bonaventure held that humans have an implicit knowledge of God, which can be made explicit through reflection. He reasoned that since every human naturally desires happiness... And since happiness, obviously, consists in the possession of the supreme good, which is God, then every human naturally desires God, whether they know this explicitly or not. Well, Thomas Aquinas uh, critiqued Bonaventure. He responded, to know that someone is coming is not to know that Peter is coming, although the person coming is, in fact, Peter. And many have thought that man's perfect good, which is happiness, consists in riches, or others that it consists in pleasure, others that it consists in some other thing. But Aquinas' counterexample doesn't really carry the force that he intends. For if I know that someone is coming, I hear their footsteps, for example, I can deduce and infer uh, at least some things about them. And an argument for God needn't tell you everything about God. Pascal said that we contain an infinite abyss that can only be filled by an infinite and immutable object, that is to say, God uh, himself. And talked about how uh, since culture has abandoned God, we try and fill this sort of God-shaped vacuum in us by all sorts of other things that don't uh, fulfill us. Chesterton. He said there is a very real sense, the presence of the absence of God. We feel it in the unfathomable sadness of pagan poetry. Absence does not mean non-existence. A man drinking a toast to an absent friend does not mean that from his life all friendship is absent. It's a void, but it's not a negation. It's something as positive as an empty chair. Well, uh, Lewis uh, had various contemporaries who also talked about this uh, theme and even uh, used uh, the argument from desire. I have a little quote from Tolkien's The Silmarillion there, for example. Particularly C.E.M. Jode, 
who was uh, a British atheist philosopher who converted uh, to Christianity and had uh, some uh, written conversation, at least, with Lewis on these subjects, uh, said that aesthetic emotion and our, our, our experiences of beauty is at once the most satisfying and the most unsatisfying experience. Satisfying because of what it gives, but unsatisfying because it gives, gives so briefly and in that act of giving, hints at greater gifts withheld. Or Simone Weil, similarly saying, when we possess a beautiful thing, we still desire something to get behind the beauty. We want more than the world can give us. Jacques Maritain puts this in the most uh, straightforwardly argumentative form, uh, picking up very much again on a sort of Aristotelian way of thinking about things, when he says, because this desire which asks for what's impossible to nature is a desire of nature, of our nature, <coughs> in its depths. It cannot issue in an absolute impossibility. It asks for what's impossible for nature, but it's necessary that by some means, which is not nature, it be able to be satisfied, since it necessarily emanates from nature. He's so saying we have a natural desire, and therefore it must be fulfillable, but that natural desire is not something that nature itself can answer. Therefore, there must be something beyond nature that answers it. This situation, and particularly Lewis's articulation in various rhetorical contexts of the experience and argument uh, of uh, desire, has led to what I call a present-day plurality. The argument from desire, as it appears in discussions today now, appeals to a range of existentially relevant innate desires. Lewis himself also talked about the irrepressible thirst for immortality, for example. Sociologist Charles Taylor recently noted our aspiration to separate ourselves from evil and chaos. Even the atheist Christopher Hitchens, uh, talking about Stevie Winwood's <coughs> song, A Higher Love, said, I admit it has evangelical overtones, but I do long, I do long for a higher love. <coughs> Alvin Plantinger argues for the properly basic status of a belief in God evoked by desire. He says, perhaps this restlessness without God leads to belief in God, and perhaps God's designed us in this way to impel us to try and get in touch with him. So you see here, uh, Plantinga fitting this experience of desire into the framework of his philosophy about uh, properly basic beliefs, about the importance of trusting our intuitions as human beings, basically. And this is what philosophers tend to do, to, to put the argument in the context of their general way of thinking about these uh, issues. So Alistair McGrath, again, he says... While some have understood Lewis's approach as a, a deductive argument for the existence of God, it's clearly an abductive or, or inferential argument. Well, I think he says that because if you read much of uh, Asda McGrath's apologetics, you find that he likes using an inferential, abductive style of argumentation rather than a deductive style of argumentation. Um, I think 
Lewis uses a broad range of argumentative styles in different contexts. He does use the argument from desire as a deductive argument, and he does use it as an inferential argument, and he does use it as an abductive argument, and so on. And so, uh, in this book uh, that I've mentioned before, I defend uh, five forms of argument from desire, uh, inspired by different ways in which Lewis puts the, the argument. Let me just give you uh, one, perhaps my favourite example of uh, an existential argument from desire, and then I'll finish. First premise. Uh, given that humans possess this innate existential uh, desires, uh, our existence would be absurd, uh, in the sort of French existentialist sense of the term, absurd, uh, to the extent that it's impossible for any human being to have those desires, our existential desires, satisfied. But secondly, humans possess innate existential desires that are probably impossible to satisfy unless God exists. Third, therefore, it follows that unless God exists, our existence is probably absurd at least to a fairly substantial extent. But here's the crucial turning point. For, however, our existence is probably not absurd. I would just claim that this is a, uh, an intuitive, properly basic uh, claim about reality that at the very least puts the burden of proof upon the sceptic, upon the nihilist. But given those four premises, it follows deductively that therefore God, or probably it follows God exists. Some people may profess a willingness to, as it were, pay the price tag of affirming the <laughs> absurdity of human existence. Certain philosophers have certainly made that claim. But it's an affirmation that's neither easy to make nor particularly to consistently live out. Finally, one last example of a contemporary engagement with this in a very recent book, uh, Two Dozen or So Arguments for God, uh, the, the Plantinga Project, inspired by a, a paper from Alvin Plantinga I mentioned a little while ago. Uh, in this book, uh, in their chapter, Todd Burgess, uh, Burris and Michael Cantrell argue that, that God is a precondition of humans obtaining complete happiness. Um, they argue that complete happiness is a seemingly uh, non-defective desire. That's an imaginable, coherent thought that humans could, in some way or other, eventually be completely happy. Uh, and that's that seemingly non-defective desire of any kind is on the face of it, prima facie, an indication of the possibility of that object, of that thing. Um, now, if God is a precondition of complete happiness and complete happiness is possible, basically, then it follows that God's existence must be possible. But that's an interesting conclusion to get to when you marry it with, say, Alvin Plantinga's version of the modal ontological argument, which I will not go into. You are glad to hear, uh, because the, the crucial debated premise of that 
uh, ontological argument is the claim precisely that God's existence is possible. So they use this argument from desire as a way of supporting the, the contested premise of Plantinga's ontological argument, which is fascinating. So to conclude, before Lewis, of course, many people wrote about joy and a few gestured towards uh, an argument from joy. Lewis considered a plurality of innate desires whilst focusing on what he called joy, and he used a plurality of argumentative forms or structures in different rhetorical contexts, you know, writing sermon or writing apologetics or, and so on. Lewis therefore produced the 20th century's principal sustained positive engagement with the argument from desire. And it's these factors that have secured his place as a central figure in the theistic argument from desire, who has inspired what today is a growing high-level engagement amongst philosophers of religion uh, with this argument. Thank you very much. Mm. Yeah, sure. So this is particularly, let me do a little self-advertising as well. In my book, um, C.S. Lewis versus the New Atheists, I look at the, the reasons Lewis changed his mind from being an atheist to first a theist and then a Christian and put those arguments in dialogue with what today's New Atheist movement has to say about them. And it's interesting that he, because of his background as an atheist, reading classical uh, atheist philosophers and so on, he took metaphysical arguments seriously. Um, so for Lewis, it's not so much things like, uh, say, the argument from design uh, or the argument from cosmology. I mean, back in that day, they didn't have the Big Bang Theory and so on. So we are often today caught up in discussions about arguments that have premises um, that come from the sciences, from the natural sciences. For Lewis, it was, it was really all about the, the metaphysical uh, issues, as you say, um, you know, is there objective morality and how do we explain that, for example? Uh, what is this experience of longing that we have and what's the best explanation uh, for that? Um, what are the alternatives to having a theistic worldview? Uh, for him, you know, the alternatives were, well, pantheism or naturalism. Um, and uh, famously, uh, of course, particularly in a um, chapter in his book, Miracles, argues that naturalism as a worldview um, is incoherent because you, you basically end up saying, uh, I'm thinking about what to believe using an instrument constructed by something that had no mind involved, that didn't intend me to be an accurate truth knower. Uh, and that that reduction, you were talking about reductionism in your paper, that attempt to reduce human reasoning to the categories available from a naturalistic worldview, you just can't stuff human thinking into that box uh, with nothing left over, 
as naturalists would, would need to be the case. So for him it was uh, the unbelievability of the alternatives plus the, 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 the power in metaphysics to explain things like objective value and this experience of, of, des of desire. Yeah. Thank you, Peter. As uh, Professor Root was just pointing out, there is a whole range of arguments available at our disposal. Mm. Two questions following from that. One, um, how strongly does C.S. Lewis consider the argument from desire to be compared mm. to others? Was the moral argument, as presented in Christianity's favorite one? Um, so. Mm. One for C.S. Lewis and two for you personally. What do you think yeah. is the strongest argument for theism? Thank you very much. Okay, I, th I, th I think from my reading of Lewis that the argument from desire was more personally affecting to him, from what I can tell. Um, that had the most sort of existential bite with him. Uh, whereas we know that when he was uh, when he was working as a philosopher before he was a professor of English literature at Oxford, which he did for a year, and then he continued doing some tutoring. But his specialism was moral philosophy, uh, and the course that he taught uh, was on moral philosophy. And that argument in Mere Christianity, which has popularised the moral argument, is 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 basically, uh, I think, a sort of. Uh, uh, popular re-explaining of the kind of moral argument used by um, philosophers that he would have read like Hastings Rashtal, uh, W.R. Sawley and so on, philosophers of, of a, a slightly earlier generation who were very much engaging with that issue of, of meta-ethics, of how you explain how come there is such a thing as right and wrong. Um, so I think um, that was something he dealt with at a sort of professional level more, but the, the existential argument from desire uh, was what what really sort of um, caught him at an existential level, and it's uh, you know in different places sometimes he, he does seem to put the argument deductively like you know QED therefore there's there's a god but other places he simply says this is a pretty good pointer that there's a god a pretty good indication um, that you know some people could get to heaven maybe you know it doesn't my longing for heaven doesn't prove I'll get there just as a man's uh, longing for water doesn't prove that he won't die of thirst in a desert. But the fact that, that a man desires water and is thirsty must mean that people drink and that drink is available, <laughs> you see. Um, so he said it's, it's a pretty good indicator. We would make inferential arguments from ducks want to swim and there's water and uh, you know, um, men want to, be, uh, to love and fall in love and there are women uh, and uh, we want this desire for something transcendent and so you know, we should probably trust that as well. Um, so he puts it in a number of ways, and I think rather than saying, you know, which is the right way to do it, as it were, the thing that I do is say, well, let's just use all of those, put them together as a cumulative case. So there's a number of different ways of expressing this. They all point in the same direction, and that's kind of the, the, the powerful, interesting thing about this argument, that you can articulate it in so many different ways that all seem uh, legitimate in their own right. Um, but the fact that you have, as you say, so many arguments, the fact that Plantinga could write a paper called Two Dozen or So Arguments for God, um, that uh, shows the, the, the intellectual um, fruitfulness of the theistic uh, worldview 